Recent decades of greater openness in the West have brought opportunities to many who've benefited from open borders and a high level of freedom of movement. But it hasn't benefited everyone. And our politics have become divided by differing attitudes to this new openness and what that means for voters and for their identity. In The Road to Somewhere, David Goodhart looks at this change in the political landscape. He examines its impact on the Brexit vote, the election of Donald Trump, the decline of the centre-left and the rise of populism across Europe. Welcome to Afterwards from Hearst Publishers. This series focuses on six books that shaped Hearst over its 50 years as an independent non-fiction publisher. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor at The Economist, and here today talking to David Goodhart in his home about his book, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics, first published in 2017 by Hearst. In his book, David sees a new axis of politics having emerged, one that revolves around value groups. Above all, it's a divide between the highly educated, the mobile, people who can see the world from anywhere and whose identities are based on their educational and career success. And the less well-educated, more rooted folk who see the world from somewhere. Their identities remain much more bound up with place and group. Anywheres who are roughly 25 to 30% of the population are broadly comfortable with openness and social change. Somewheres, about half of the population, are more likely to see change as a loss. But according to the British Social Attitudes Survey, they're not homogeneous groups. And there's an in-between a group of around 25%, which shares the two main worldviews almost equally. So what do they make of the changes in our societies? And how are the values divisions affecting traditional party politics? And what lies ahead for all of us? So, David, thank you for welcoming me into your book-lined room. I'm going to say room, but in fact, it's rooms, because this is truly a writer's house. The Road to Somewhere was clearly conceived in a book-rich environment. And I think what you've done extremely well in this book and in the work that's led up to it over many years is challenge the idea that politics is a bit of a pendulum. It moves one way, it moves the other. You really believe that a breakthrough, or in some senses a breakdown, has happened. And I wonder if you could just give us your fundamental theory, your anywheres and Mm. somewheres, just to root our conversation in what you're best known for. Yeah, sure. The Road to Somewhere is a kind of work of amateur social psychology, really. And I was surprised in some ways that it hadn't been written before, because it's sort of obvious (laughs) that we have been shifting away from a politics on which the main axis is socioeconomic factors, social class is the basic unit, size of the state, market versus state, all these arguments that we grew up with in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s even. But it's kind of obvious that since what one might call the great opening that I suppose was symbolised by the entry of China into WTO, the Maastricht Treaty in the early 90s in the EU, all of those things that really did cause our societies to become significantly more open, both economically and socially and culturally. But, you know, the populist politics that we've seen since then is fundamentally a a reaction to that, a response to that. And the populism, the Brexit vote, Trump, populism in Europe, 
has all, I think, been an expression of a new axis in politics, which is much more to do with socio-cultural matters, with values, with openness, with you know how you feel about the speed of social change, borders, boundaries, security and identity issues. All of these things have contrived to change the language, change the terms of our politics. When I was writing the book, I spent a lot of time with my nose in the British Social Attitude surveys and other opinion and value surveys. And emerging from that study came these different value groups and when i so i didn't invent the value groups i invented the labels that, that this the, is the, the anywheres and the somewheres and i'm just yeah. going to like, oh, let's pin the tail on the donkey what does an anywhere believe so anywheres are not just metropolitan elites although they form a sort of subset of anywheres anywheres are about 25 even 30 percent of the population essentially kind of educated people which these days meaning at least a university degree and particularly in this country, they tend to be mobile. Education and mobility go together in many places, but particularly here because about 80% of students study residential universities. So education, mobility, and then the things that most people would associate with people who are highly educated and mobile. People tend to be comfortable with, with openness. They tend to believe in autonomy and individualism. They have also what's, I think, a very useful parallel to my anywhere, somewheres, is the identity ideas of the American sociologist Talker Parsons, who talked about identity being on a spectrum between achieved and ascribed. And we're we're all some sort of combination of those Mm. two things. You know, I'm white, male, British. Ascribed means things about you that you can't change. People with so-called achieved identities have identities that are more easily portable, which means that I think they can ride the kind of surf of modern social change more easily. They can fit in almost anywhere. If you have a sense of yourself that's a result of your own past exams when you were young, you've had a more or less successful professional career, educational success and then professional career, that means you're immune from feeling uncomfortable about social change. At the other end of the spectrum, the, the so-called somewheres tend to be less well-educated, tend to be much more rooted in, in places, and tend to value the things you, that you would expect people like that to value, in a way, sort of security, familiarity, protection. They want some protection from, from the forces of social change, and they tend to have identities that are more susceptible to discomfort when social change kind of rips through their town or neighbourhood. So what would make your treatment of, of Brexit, and this particular framing, lots of books are appearing about Brexit, I think a number of publishers decided they didn't want to sort of go ahead with this. Hearst took up this book because they thought it was important, they thought it made sense of the Brexit vote from a particular good heart angle. If I were to say to you, well, a lot of what you said could have applied, you wrote about it yourself, in the run-up to the debate, long before Brexit happening was really on the cards in most people's minds. What makes Brexit such a crystallising moment? Is it just a correlation or is it a causation? Oh, no, all, all of these things have been, I mean, like, like uh, you know, earlier, I went back to the early 90s. I think you know, if we want to look for a cause, it is in the great opening of our societies that, that happened then. It was a good thing in many ways, but it didn't affect everybody in the same way. So, you know, Tony Blair made a famous speech about how left v. right has now been replaced by open v. closed, which I always found terribly self-regarding in a way. He was basically saying, look, I'm one of the sort of open people. And have you ever met anybody who wants to live in a closed society? No. But there are lots of people who feel the forms of openness, as, as they've evolved over the last 20 or 30 years, have not been to their advantage. You know, if you're suddenly faced with the double whammy of, you know, your factory closes, the supply chain moves to China, people have sort of just about got used to that idea that trade, you know, there are some frictions, your, your standard of living may go down for a while, but overall people benefit from open trade. Well, OK. But then a whole 
new workforce from Central and Eastern Europe is kind of introduced into the country to compete with you, um, you know, for public services, for employment. People, have, I think, have a right to sort of think, well, hang on, what's going on here? You know, does national citizenship not still have any value? I started writing the book actually just before Brexit. And I, mean, I was going to write a book that was perhaps a little bit more sort of philosophical, almost beyond left and right kind of themes. And then this unexpected event happened while I was kind of in the foothills of writing it. And then as I was finishing writing it, six months later, Trump was elected. So I was very lucky with the timing of the book. I mean, I ended up writing a book that was a little bit more focused, obviously, on Brexit and Trump. But it was sort of the essential argument that I'd have made anyway, even if those two events hadn't happened. We still would have had these divisions. They wouldn't have been quite so violently exposed to the light as they have been. Andrew Marr says, uh, reviewing the book, it was provocative and timing was pitch perfect. I think you've, you've just given us an indication of, of why that is. And I think it's an extremely challenging book in many ways because you excavate very well the idea that there are changes. And one thing I, I wondered, as it's also, it's very well written and you're a writerly journalist by background as, as well as an analyst of British social attitudes surveys and the like, is how much you questioned about yourself as you were going back to this theme in different times. I think you also wanted to tease out the fact that these are tribes, but they're not completely stuck, are they? They're not oh, no, cast no, no, in aspect. No. So what is the challenge, if you like, to your own thesis that you wanted to explore and tease out in this particular I suppose book? There was a, I should also give a bit of a shout out to Hearst, <laughs> because the interesting thing is that although it turned out to be a bestseller, the book was actually rejected by many of the bigger publishing houses. Why was um, it? And my agent showed me some of the kind of rejection emails. And a lot, these, a lot of people who I knew, you know, I used to edit Prospect magazine, so I kind of know a lot of people in literary and publishing London. People were taking personally, oh, but I'm not an anywhere. You know, I'm not one of these, you know, people who's only interested in sort of openness and sending all my kids to Russell Group universities and, and not being in touch with the rest of the country. You know, this is kind of liberal literary London, I think was made to feel uncomfortable by some of the things I was writing about. And so... Hearst come along and, and Hearst and this is a book that has been in some ways more uncomfortable for the left than for the right it's been much more sort of taken up by the right than the left even though it's kind of written in some ways for the sort of Guardian reading liberal establishment in some ways saying look you know actually you're part of the problem too mm. you can't just blame it on capitalism and rich people that actually the kind of Brahmin left in the universities are part of the problem too and Hearst is very much a kind of sort of post-colonial or they publish a lot of sort of post-colonial literature from the Indian subcontinent, from Africa. And so, I mean, loosely kind of on the left publisher. So I think it was particularly brave of them in some ways to sort of take up this book. But yes, there's also a kind of autobiographical element to it. I mean, I'm kind of an extreme anywhere in some ways. I mean, I come from a very privileged background. I went away to boarding school when I was eight. You know, I've kind of lived in lots of different parts of the country. You know, I don't have a very sort of rooted existence. But it was actually through, it was in my kind of previous life when I got very interested in immigration. And it was through thinking about immigration and having some sympathy for sort of classically liberals and people on the left are mainly sympathetic to newcomers and people coming here from abroad, which is perfectly right and proper, as indeed I am. But they kind of lack a sympathy for the people who are already here, whose lives are often substantially changed by large-scale immigration. And it was, I think, through realising that there is such a thing as society. And in some ways, the left... They accept the existence of, and indeed the legitimacy of groups and group attachments in economics, social class. But when it comes to 
culture and society, the left goes all sort of Thatcherite and individualistic. And that, you know, any, you know, well, why can't we have another 100,000 Afghan refugees, you know, because we're all just a random collection of individuals, aren't we? You know, what, you know, I mean, and that is so obviously not the case. And I, and it sort of struck me through my interest in immigration, that the left had sort of lost its sense of society in the social and cultural sense. Perhaps one of the criticisms of this way of looking at things, the anywheres and in some ways, is that it's great description and less good guide to the right policy balance. Because you could say if you basically just want to be very tough on immigration, get the numbers right down, we're just coming out of a time when certainly the Conservative Party had a target which it kept missing because immigration is actually, it turns out, very difficult to control if you want the other goods that flow from it in terms of enriching your labour market flexibility and all those other good things. So what is it you're actually proposing? Do you agree with immigration caps? No, I mean, I think, you know, I'd be in favour of returning to relatively more modest levels of immigration than we had in the, you know, in, in the 1990s. That's probably quite a hard ask, but I mean, just Continuing to worry about the scale of immigration seems to be a right and proper thing to do. Having a net immigration target was always a mistake. Actually, the target we should have had, and perhaps still should have in some ways, is the permanent residence. The vast majority of our gross annual inflow of sort of 600,000 plus is people coming here for limited periods, most obviously students, but also people coming to work. And actually, at least prior to the Brexit vote and the EU citizen situation, the number of people that were actually being granted permanent residence had come down to kind of 30, 40, 50,000 a year. Now, if there had been some sort of target for that, because that is what really changes doesn't things. Doesn't one group tend to morph into the other group? No. People don't always um, declare well, well, that is true. how I mean, long they will that, stay in a country. Well, that, and that's, they might that's be well advised a, not to. That's the problem of illegal immigration. And this is what the so-called hostile environment was invented because we don't have ID cards. I mean, the hostile environment... It was essentially a rather clumsy form of ID card for people that don't have the automatic so right to just, stay. So this is just to flesh it out for listeners, yeah. this was the Theresa uh, well, May... It was invented by Liam Byrne, I think, that phrase. I mean, it goes back to late Labour. Um, so it's kind of you're welcome, but you're not that welcome. Well, you are welcome to come here for the period of time and to do the things that your visa tells you that you can do. So, yeah, it's absolutely not welcoming illegal immigration. Some people um, think that the downside of that, not least in the way that it was framed hide something a bit nastier. I guess this would also be an argument. You might say it tends to be raised more on the left, but that there is always a worry in societies about Mm. trying to squeeze an immigration policy to maximum efficiency can mean that people who entirely benign want to work and thrive in a place bend the rules a bit to overstay a visa, then find themselves subject to a hostile environment sort of policy or approach. And that that, in some way, in a kind of moral sense, pulls against many of the aspirations of a liberal society. And it doesn't mean that you have to sort of big up a liberal Mm. society as being only about how many people you let in. I take that point. But I wonder whether that worries you at all that that voice can come through? Well, not really, no. I mean, I actually write very little about immigration in the road somewhere. (laughs) I mean, I have written about it previously, and it does sort of inform my view of the world to some extent. But I coined the phrase in the road to somewhere, decent populists. And I think that is worth unpacking because I do think liberals almost sort of require the deplorables. (laughs) They have a caricature view, I think, of you know, what it is to be nativist or xenophobic, you know, so that anybody who feels a little bit uncomfortable if their neighbourhood changes very rapidly is immediately put in the xenophobic or even racist box. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for people to feel uncomfortable if they're, particularly if they're older people, you know, that suddenly the place that their familiarity disappears. 
They are surrounded by lots of people who speak a language they don't understand. Suddenly the shops will change. I mean, I think it's perfectly legitimate for people not to want that. And you're right to say that these are very difficult things to come up with policies for. You know, you know essentially this is about trying to slow down social change, at least for some people, offering the protection for those people that want it at least. But I do think there is a... Um, a tendency to sort of overblame, and I think this is why I came up with the concept of decent populism. And what I mean by that is people who have broadly accepted the great liberalisation of the last 30 years or so, I mean, on race, on gender, on sexuality. I mean, you know, again, if you look at the Social Attitude Survey, we've seen enormous changes, you know, for the better in all of these areas. I mean, it was as recently as the late 80s, you know, something like 70% of the population thought that homosexuality was wrong, and now 80% are happy with gay marriage. That's an easy thing to kind of go along with. It doesn't really sort of demand very much of people. But, I mean, it's an indicator of just how things have changed. And yet, but that doesn't mean to say that people are liberals. I mean, they accepted the great liberalisation, but they also want to have, you know, a sense that, that society is not changing too fast, that the border is well managed, that the immigration isn't too high, that national citizenship rights are placed before universal rights or indeed even European rights. One of the reasons why policies in this area are so difficult to come up with, I think, is that it's harder to split the difference on value-divide issues than it is on socioeconomic issues. And, you, know, you can sort of say, well, on socioeconomics, sort of people on the left say, OK, well, let's tax the rich at above a certain level at 80% of their income or whatever. Someone on the right will say, well, we've got to worry about incentives, let's leave it at 50%. And you can sort of split the difference on 65% or whatever. I mean, there are sort of, there are obvious kind of middle paths. On values, it's very hard to have a policy that is both very pro-immigration and wants to keep it pretty low. <laughs> or, you know, on family policy or whatever, you can't, you know... The, it's harder with sociocultural things to split the difference. So you interrogate this idea of populism, which I think has become a bit of a catch-all, so I'm pleased that you try to nuance it, or at least to bring a viewpoint to it. I've got the impression, certainly in the, the aftermath of the Brexit vote and also spending a lot of time, as you do, in, in Germany, the word populist was just used for anyone who was more popular than you. <laughs> it must be a populist. There must be something dodgy going on. Decent populist is a phrase that you came up with. Did you find it easy, though, to draw the line? Because there clearly is a, a scale of populism which people yeah, might want to get on and yeah. off it at different points but you wouldn't mm. you know i would find for instance the people who sort of want to make a sort of apologia for orban in hungary for Viktor orban to be i think they're going the wrong way i think that is a populism that goes too far and has a raw edge but i don't know really you know i think you started to talk about it. i'm just interested in your own view of where the borderline between decent and indecent populism lies i think it's i think overt racism is obviously one of the differences but i mean there are populist parties you know there are the kind of street gang populists, you know, Golden Dawn in Greece and others, you know, who are clearly beyond the pale. I mean, I certainly regard Orban as legitimate. You may disagree with some of his policies. Fidesz may be too powerful. You know, he's just someone that one disagrees with, you know, but he's a perfectly legitimate elected politician. Right, but let's look in the UK context and mm. say, seeing as this is shaping British politics and, of course, the wider world is reflected and at us and the other way around. But, all right, tell me about decent and indecent populism in the British context. Are you clear in your own mind where populism is going now and is it changing as we go through this long aftermath of the Brexit vote? Well, I mean, populism has had great successes. And actually, it's interesting that its most successful expressions have been in the Anglo-American world. Brexit and Trump are undoubtedly the two most sort of powerful expressions of populism of the last few years. And I think it is no coincidence that it's in two-party, first-past-the-post systems where populism has not been allowed 
to find a voice to express itself. And I actually think continental Europeans have done much better than us in some ways. How so? Well, because they've had proportional representation systems, the populist voice has been sort of absorbed into the system much more. I mean, we've had, what, populist participation in EU country governments in, in six or seven different countries. And I think the broad direction of travel is that populists become domesticated. Their policies become more moderate. There's an absolute wonderful example of this when we had the um, Italian populist government a few months ago and both the Cinque Stella and Liga had signed up to this anti-vaccine cult. And I think Cinque Stella minister was, had the Department of Health, and, and a few months into the government, there was an outbreak of measles or mumps or something in Italian schools, and they had to completely drop their anti-vax policy and you know, get the children vaccinated as quickly as possible. And the, and the outbreak, I think, receded. They learn and they adapt. I mean, it doesn't always happen. I mean, I think the true Finns in Finland have actually become more radical, not less. But I think they're an exception that sort of proves the rule. There's an interesting uh, part I remember underlining when I read the book, and it's in the European Populism, the Crisis of the Left chapter. And you draw some contrast with Donald Trump, because there's also a bit of a tendency to put everything in the magic mix, isn't there? Sort of Trump, Brexit, Orban, whatever. Those who perhaps like to see populism as something that is one thing, I don't think you do. I think you think it's more of a sort of linked concatenation of frustrations. And you say on Trump, populism is, of course, about race as well as class. Do you think that is also true of the UK. You, you've talked about people feeling that their somewhere status is threatened. But is it different, say, if you're threatened by someone coming from an EU member state who is white and mm. looks outwardly like yourself in the terms of their ascribed identity, or if they come from, say, the Indian subcontinent? I don't think particularly. I mean, I think to the extent that immigration was a factor behind the Brexit vote, it was probably Central and Eastern European immigration, therefore white and Christian immigration. It was more of a factor than immigration from the Commonwealth or the developing world. But I, mean, I would regard many of these acts as a kind of democratic rebalancing. I think they're Brexit, Trump. This hasn't just come out of the blue. This has been a response to the massive opening of our societies, I mentioned right at the beginning. And it's not because of the brilliant demagoguery of uh, Nigel Farage or whatever. It's because people have not had the chance until something like the Brexit referendum came along because we've had such a consensus. I mean, I think this is the point that the anywhere worldview and the somewhere worldview, and by the way, it sounds very binary, but actually there are lots of different... I mean, it, it, the book is partly about all mm. the different kinds of anywheres and all the different kinds of somewheres, and indeed there's a big in-between a group who more or less equally share the anywhere and somewhere mm. worldviews. But it's because the anywheres have so dominated our culture, economy, politics for the last 25 years or so and have sort of not been sufficiently aware of the extent to which they've dominated, particularly politics. And it was that sense that more and more of the population who were not in the kind of anywhere worldview camp had become more and more disillusioned with politics, sort of quietly just not voting. You know, we've, we've seen this decline in participation. You know, lots of people just stopped voting because they thought both of these political parties, whether it's the centre-right or centre-left, essentially have the same worldview, that actually, you know, pass exams, go to a Russell Group University and become a successful professional person like us. It was kind of, you know, everybody's got to become like Nick Clegg. But actually there are lots of people that either can't do that or don't want to do that. And there are, you know, there are other forms of life that somehow got squeezed out of this anywhere worldview. And people used the first opportunity that came along to kind of give, give two fingers to that anywhere over domination. So tell us about the in-betweeners, because I think that's something, if I understand the evolution of your thought correctly, that I think you perhaps give more 
attention to than than earlier on probably as you say as you've gone deeper into looking mm. at the, it's a bit like sort of carbon dating isn't it you start out thinking oh this is all pretty clear and i think this is also one of the things that makes it such an interesting journey to follow intellectually so what does it mean to be in in between it does it mean that you just have very changeable moods <laughs> well, does, I mean, does it mean that you hold two ideas like at I the say, same I mean, time i invented the labels i didn't invent the categories if you interrogate the British Social Attitude Service, you will just find there is a the group, the more kind of liberal, open group who are the anywheres, and then you've got the more security-conscious group who, who are the somewheres, and there is a group that is sort of more or less equally shares that. You know, the, the numbers suggest it's about 25%. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they are the kind of swing voters in this in uh, some ways. To tell me about the geography of that. Do you notice that more in particular parts of the country? Does it map onto the classic demographic map or not um, so much? I was doing it more, I think, by age and class than by region. I mean, most of the anywhere population is in the big metropolitan centres and the university towns. Most of the somewhere population is in smaller towns and suburbs and indeed the countryside. I mean, one of the things I really do want to emphasise, and I think perhaps it didn't come across enough in the book, partly because I am quite hard on the anywheres, is that both of these worldviews are perfectly decent and legitimate, at least in their mainstream form. There are the bottom end, if you like, of the somewheres. There are genuine xenophobes and racists and nativists, you know, depending on the issue, perhaps anything between sort of two and six or seven percent of the population. And, you know, and you might say at the very sort of top end of the anywheres, you do have the real sort of global villagers who don't feel any particular national social contract any longer. The kind of people that uh, Theresa May was having a pop at in her family citizens of nowhere but in their mainstream forms these worldviews are both perfectly decent and legitimate they just happen to rub up against each other you know in pretty basic ways so if we just were to wind ourselves towards some kind of a conclusion here do you think that this clash between somewheres anywheres does it change as we look forward into the months and years ahead? Or do you think it's kind of reached, if not a steady state, then a state of suspicious acknowledgement that these forces now exist and won't go away so easily? I think we're sort of still in the in a period of sort of disequilibrium. I mean, you know, we had the original unbalancing of the boat with the rapid expansion of the anywhere population and their rapid increase in sort of power and and weight in our society. I mean, that, you might say, was the original unbalancing. I mean, if you go, you know, you might say the anywhere, somewhere distinction has always been with us throughout human history. There have been, you know, the higher yeah, education. Yeah, you made that challenge, couldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, to which my answer but is... You could write which, Latin. Yeah, yeah, if you were the venerable exactly. yeah, yeah. you were To which my answer is, but there were so few of them. Until quite recently, they tended to have the same values as Joe Public, too. You know, you go back to the 1950s. Winston Churchill and Clement Attlee would have differed fundamentally about economic things. Well, actually, by 1950, they probably didn't even differ that much about economics, given that the Tories accepted the post-war settlement. But, you know, if if you're talking about race, gender, any of the sort of great issues that now move us, they'd have had exactly the same views as each other and exactly the same views as the man or woman in the street, probably. There would have been much more sort of cultural homogeneity. Now, that has all changed dramatically. The anywhere population was probably 5% back in the 1930s or even the 1950s. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, things began to change. And particularly after the early 90s, with a mass expansion of higher education, you got a huge expansion of the anywhere population, and that unbalanced the boat. And then you had the pushback 
as it were, against the anywhere over domination that we're now kind of living through, Brexit, Trump, European populism, I think we're kind of reaching towards a, a new equilibrium in which, you know, we don't want to just move from anywhere's being too powerful to somewhere's being too powerful. We want a new balance in which anywheres continue, as it were, to run the show, but they accommodate more sensitively the somewhere voice than they did in the past. So I would like to ask you, as you're writing your book and, and thinking about in this book-lined uh, apartment that we're in, which book influenced you? It doesn't have to set you directly on this particular course as an author, but would you say if there was a sediment of your thinking now, once we've read your book, where else should we go? It's a book that I actually quote quite a bit in The Road to Somewhere, and the book is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, the American social psychologist. I, I said right at the beginning that I think my work is a work of kind of amateur social psychology, and I'm a little surprised that people hadn't written about these kind of value divides in a kind of serious but popular way before. Well, that's exactly what Jonathan has done. You know, he is a proper professor of social psychology in America and has written, I think, a, a book that influenced me a lot. I mean, these were some of the things that I'd sort of been half thinking about and grappling, but he kind of completed my thoughts, as it were. You've got it on the desk in front of us, Jonathan Haidt, yeah. the rightiest mind. And I think I'd probably pitch in Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal. But David Goodhart, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us on the book. And uh, very much enjoyed reading it. Hope our audience does too. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough for Hearst Publishers. Thank you to David Goodhart for taking part in this episode. Please rate and subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. It really helps others find out about the show. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers, David at David underscore Goodhart, and Anne at Anne McElvoy on Twitter. And get news on the latest Hearst books by subscribing to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. If you like what you heard, we have a special discount code for any listeners wanting to order a Hearst book. Just visit hearstpublishers.com and use the code AFTERWARDS25. That's AFTERWARDS25 and you can get a discount code on any book Hearst publishes.